invite you to either kneel or bow your heads in prayer with me. O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts always be acceptable in thy sight, for thou art our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, here we are at the fourth Sunday of Lent. Um, We're halfway done through the season of Lent. Lent is six Sundays, um, if you include Palm Sunday. And so we're more than halfway, and that's something to celebrate and rejoice in, right? Because while this is a time where we... um, we, we uh, are brought closer to Christ through disciplines of fasting, almsgiving, and prayer, and self-reflection. It's also a difficult time. Let's not kid ourselves. And so oftentimes this Sunday, half, the halfway mark, if you will, or the, the um, seventh inning stretch, if you will, uh, in Lent, is called not just the fourth Sunday of Lent, but Rose Sunday. Uh, or Refreshment Sunday. In parts of the world, it's also called Mothering Sunday. If you're British or in one of the British Commonwealth countries, today is Mother's Day. And so, you know, being a church with British origins, and Father Joshua being from a British Commonwealth country of Nigeria, um, we are also celebrating that too. We're going to talk a little bit about that. And part of the reason I chose that opening hymn today, which was so familiar to us, is um, the tune is Mater- Materna, I believe. And um, it uh, reminds us of the fact that the church, Jerusalem, is our mother. And so hopefully uh, you made that connection as we sang that this morning. There's also some other traditions that go along on Rose Sunday or Mothering Sunday. We take a break from Lent in some ways. We do have an opening hymn instead of silent procession. We have altar flowers, which we don't have for the rest of Lent. We're taking a breather. We're getting refreshment. And we're remembering how blessed we are to be part of the church. How blessed we are to be part of the church. And so Mothering Sunday is not just a time when those churchmen or Christians in the Anglican communion remember their mothers, but it's also historically a time when people return to the church where they were baptized. And so all over you would see people going to their home parish churches and remembering their upbringing in the church honoring the church, their mother. It's a homecoming. It's a homecoming. And, you know, much like our fall homecomings for our high school, uh, so is the thought of Mothering Sunday for the Christian and their home church. Now, of course, we all have different experiences of that, right? But we hold some things in common. Number one, it helps you remember where you're from. It helps you remember who you were. And it helps you remember who's helped you along the way. Any homecoming does that. It's a beautiful act of devotion or gratitude. And I'll not lie to you, it, it can and probably should be to some degree emotional. Right? 
when we return to the place where we first met Jesus, or Jesus first met us, when we return to the people or the place where we first encountered salvation, that's the ultimate homecoming, because it looks forward to that final homecoming, where we will be recalled to heavenly Jerusalem, to our mother. So Mothering Sunday is about that, and I just want to share with you and walk through with you what that would look like since none of us grew up here in this building. I want to share my experience with you. One of the things that Leah, my wife, makes fun of me for whenever we go to my hometown is that I have to visit my church. I have to visit Christ Church here on. And we at the very least drive by. It's like waving to an old friend. But once in a while, we walk in. And as you enter the church, you pass the baptismal font. Sometimes those fonts are ancient, used for generations. That one, I believe, has the, the date carved in in 1888, which is old for this country. But sometimes they're new. But the thing is the same. Whether that font or baptistry is old or new, this is where a new life in Jesus begins. It's where it began for me. Whether you remember it or not, whether you remember your baptism or not, that is, here you were filled with the Holy Spirit for the first time and sealed as Christ's own forever. If you grew up in a liturgical church, here you first participated as a Christian, even if you were just a baby listening, to the life-saving statement of the Apostles' Creed. As you walk down the aisle, you bow slightly before entering your pew, as you were taught, and you sit there looking at the lectern and the pulpit. You remember those saints who read God's word to you with conviction and heart, much as Brian did today for us. Or perhaps you look at the pulpit and you remember the pastor, the priest, the preacher, taking that pulpit to instruct the congregation, teaching the word of God faithfully week after week, hopefully. Perhaps you might have understood it as a child or grasped a small part of it. But then again, even as a youngster, as my home priest used to call us, you saw how careful the priest was with the word of God, how caring he used the words of eternal life, to shepherd and guide you, to nourish you week after week, to give people that refreshment in the daily grind of their life, whatever they were facing, whatever hardships they were going through, whatever questions about the meaning of life or even about God they were asking. As you grew older, you realized why that's so important, why indeed it is holy why it is life-giving bread. As the Holy Communion table was set with bread and wine, you remember the body and blood of God, a God who loved you so much that he gave his only Son to save you. You look up at the cross above or perhaps on the altar, and you bow, and as you bow, you can't help but to say, Thank you, Jesus. You join in the responses to the Eucharistic prayer, joining together with your parents, godparents, 
grandparents, as well as thousands in every land who now have life, or at some time did, and spoke some variant of that prayer since Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper that night, Monday, Thursday. You joined in those responses, and you participate in that community. You think about how many prayers these walls, this sanctuary has absorbed for over the, over the many years it stood here. The earnest prayers of thanks, celebrating new life and victories in life. Those just as earnest prayers of pain and struggling, of pouring out your heart before God who cares and loves you. The searching for meaning in life's dark times. The loss of a child or a dear friend dying or some great disease. You go forward and humbly take your place at the altar rail. You think upon how many times you traveled down this aisle. Each week, you came to this place. If you grew up in that church first, you were carried there as a baby. Then, you walked up by yourself, toddling, as your father, mother, or grandparent helped you holding your hand. As you kneel and recall the first time you walked forward to the altar rail to receive Holy Communion, all of this comes back to you. How the congregation there loved you and supported you during those difficult years of middle school and high school. As you kneel there, you receive Christ once again, his body given for you, his blood shed for you. The priest and the deacon remind you to preserve your body and soul now into everlasting life. Several years later, you knelt at that same altar rail and were confirmed in your faith in front of the bishop when he asked you to make this faith your own, whether you would indeed profess yourself to be a follower of Christ and embark on the work that he'd called you to. And you responded, with the help of God, I will. As you return from the altar rail, down that same aisle again, kneeling in your pew, perhaps praying for your friends and family. You pass people that you know and love. And you also pass uh, those who are no longer there, who have gone before. Perhaps that, in, as in my case, that old World War II veteran that used to wink at you as a, as a kid as you walked back to your pew after every Sunday communion, just letting you know that you were important. You were special. You were part of the family. These experiences, these relationships, these people, these, these acts of instruction and love and service, they're all gifts to you. They're all gifts to me. They're gifts of your mother. They're gifts of your mother, the church. You see, <clears throat> excuse me, it's true, as St. James tells us, that all gifts come from God. But God chooses to work in us and through us. 
or call, it's through St. Peter and the apostles that God chooses to build his church. And it's through the bishops and deacons, the faithful laity over the years, the saints, the martyrs, later on the priests, that we receive these gifts. The source of these gifts is God. God created our world entirely out of his love and beneficence. And even when Adam and Eve rebelled and fell entirely into the enslaving power of sin, and mankind was very far gone from original righteousness, as the 39 Articles of Religion say, even then, God loved us. As our epistle from Ephesians today states in chapter 2, verse 4, and I invite you to look at it with me. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. As Paul says, we are dead in our sins. We're dead in our trespasses. Mankind was dead in his sins and utterly hopeless. And before coming to church, you too, friend, were dead in your sins. Utterly hopeless. Deserving of condemnation. But, though mankind was completely lost, God intervened. Though we were lost hopelessly in darkness, and if you doubt what I have to say about that, just read chapter 1 of Romans, starting with verse 18. We hear language about the state of mankind, starting with, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteous men, and going on to say that men suppress the truth, are foolish, have darkened hearts, impure and unashamed, immoral, and deserve to die. But if you doubt St. Paul on that, all you have to do is look at our first lesson today. Look at what God's people are doing, what the leaders of God's people are doing in Second Chronicles chapter 36. You don't have to go farther than the first verse. All the officers of the priests and the people likewise were exceedingly unfaithful following all the abominations of the nations. They polluted the house of the Lord that he had made holy in Jerusalem. You see, that's the state before you come to the church, your mother. That's the state before you are instituted and become one of the family in holy baptism. That's your state outside of Jesus but by God's love and grace, you were saved. Out of the abundance of his mercy, you were saved. Through his bride, the church, you were saved. And in today's gospel reading, we see Jesus speaking about this saving. Now, we see an action in today's gospel. As you look at the gospel from John chapter 6, you hear the story of Jesus ascending the mountain, the modern-day Golan Heights, near the Sea of Tiberias, or Galilee. And in John's gospel, Jesus is known as the Lamb of God. 
the Lamb of God. That theme comes up over and over again in John's Gospel. And so it's not for any coincidence that here we have the Lamb of God ascending the mount, ascending the mount during the Feast of Passover, the, the feast where a lamb is sacrificed for the people and miraculously feeding his people. Look particularly at the Gospel reading, John 6, verses 11 through 14. It's on the back of your insert. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. So you see, we know that Jesus was so much more than a prophet, which the crowd there calls him. He was so much more than a king. He is the Son of God. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world and feeds his people. Not only does he save us, but he feeds us through his church. By God's love, friend, and by his grace, you are fed through his bride, the church. By the proclamation of God's word from week to week, from the lectern first and then exposited upon here in the pulpit typically, and through the sacrament of Holy Communion, when you ascend the mount to the table to which you've been called by the blood of Jesus. In God's love and grace, we have been called together, united not by color of our skin, by political party or national heritage, by educational background or economic status, or any of the myriad of false identities swirling around in our culture today and used as weapons to divide us. No. We're united together in faith. Faith first. In the family of God. In a common trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ. With the understanding that he saved us by that grace alone. Again, in our epistle, in our Ephesians passage, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, we read, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a work, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's through verse 10. And we don't even bring ourselves into fellowship in the church. Oh, it's true, you might have chosen to come here today. That's true. But initially, we're not even brought into the church by our own choice. Later on in John chapter 6, Jesus tells the disciples, and therefore us, that nobody comes to him unless the Father draws him. John 6.44 Notice the language here of Ephesians. How it's passive. How God loved us 
or you could substitute God loved you. How God made us, how God made you, how God saved us, how God raised us, how God has seated us in place of of incredible riches. Dear friends, I hope that you understand just how blessed you are to be in that position. I hope you get it, that you have available to you, not by your own right, but by God's grace alone, through the sacrament of holy baptism, what others do not. You have the right to call the God of the universe, Father, and boldly approach Him. Others do not. You have the right to call the church of the saints Heavenly Jerusalem, as St. Paul calls her in Galatians 4.26, your mother. Other people do not. No matter where your journey began in the Lord, and it looked different for all of us, God loves you and has shown you mercy and salvation through His Son and has given you His holy bride, the church, to care for you, to raise you, to feed you, to transform you, that His workmanship, which is being done in you, might be brought to completion. Friend, don't act like an orphan. You are no orphan. You are a son or a daughter of God. Don't forget that. And more importantly, don't neglect to walk with your father or forsake your mother. When we read Psalm 122, may you be lifted and refreshed with the first verse. I was glad when they said unto me, We will go into the house of the Lord. Now our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. And let us think about the fact that we have peace because we stand inside her walls. Indeed, because of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek to do you good, we say. Every Sunday for a Christian should be a homecoming. Every walk in that aisle is a homecoming. Every bow to the altar and the cross as you pass by should remind you of the love of Jesus Christ. Every time you come to the table, you should remember that we come with outstretched hands, with no power in ourselves to be saved weekly. Christ's sacrifice once upon the cross has saved you, that is true. But so we come here to be sanctified, to be transformed, to be made into the image of Jesus Christ. Nothing else will do. And God provides nothing else because nothing else is needed. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.